Recorded live. Ah, yes. Good evening, folks. Welcome back to the flagship show. I am your host, Joshua Zimmer. And, of course, this show is brought to you by NGSC Sports at NGSCSports.com. And it's on NGSC Sports Radio. Always got a good docket for you. And, of course, can't do this without my lofty co-host. Of course, he was the IQ for Ralph, and now he's the IQ for me, Mr. John Doucette. John, how are you doing this evening? Ah, very good, Josh. Good to be with you once again. Hey, of course. It's always good to have you. And, of course, my brother from another, Montel Hardy, my fellow senior NFL draft analyst. How are you doing this evening? Uh, Doing good, buddy. It's uh, great to be on the show. Great to be your co-host, my man. I think we're coming up on a month here, so hey, hey. (laughs) Just like that, it's been been a very – it's been a solid month, bro. Hey, for real. And with that being said, we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Of course, you know, with the NFL kind of slowing down, that is now going to open it up for some other sports, and that being uh, the NBA. Of course, the NBA had their all-star game this weekend, East versus the West, where the West dominated and the East kind of dominated. And it kind of doesn't make the game any fun anymore. Uh, But it was 168 – or 163 – 158, the West take it. It was the most combined points scored ever in an all-star game. Uh, But talking about the other festivities, John, uh, obviously in the hollowed arena at Madison Square Gardens, uh, what was one of the things that you took away from all-star weekend? I'll tell you the one thing I was disappointed in. I was disappointed in Kevin Durant's media performance, which I think took place either on Friday or Saturday when reporters were asking him about his injuries asking them about the team at the moment not being in playoff contention, although they're, they're certainly well within range of catching Phoenix and talking yep. about the, the struggles of the first half of the year. And he just finally had enough of it and kind of went off on the media. I think that, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of pressure on Durant and Westbrook to bring that team to, uh, to a championship level, and I understand that. But, uh, I mean, it's been a difficult first half of the year for Oklahoma City. Durant and Westbrook are now healthy. And with the final 30 games of the season now staring them in the face, the opportunity to make a playoff run is still very much there for them. I think the questions that were asked of him were legitimate enough that he didn't have to explode on them the way he did. So that would be the one disappointing aspect uh, of that weekend. From a good point of view, I think um, the moment that the the, uh, the Nick reunion took place at Senecor, which I believe was, um, I want to say, early second quarter, uh, when uh, Willis Reed and and uh, Phil Jackson, Walt Frazier, uh, Dave DeBuscher uh, were out there on center court. It, uh, it does harken back to a time when the Knicks were a very good team and a championship-quality team, and uh, at least for those brief moments that those guys were standing there at center court, it, uh, it took away from what has become a very disappointing team for the current Knicks franchise. And, and disappointing indeed. Uh, 
which leads me before I turn it to you, Montel, my next question, uh, even though it has no all-star relevance, even though actually I take that back, it does have some all-star relevance. What do you think about the whole situation with Carmelo Anthony saying that he could potentially shut himself down for the remainder of the year, even after he played in the all-star game? That's what I don't understand. Why did he play in the game? That's what he's about. I mean, look, he made, and as a Bulls fan, you know, I'm going to recuse myself here from talking about the actual team itself. But if we're going to talk about Melo, I mean, he's a big-time guy. He likes to play in front of the lights. You know, he likes uh, the spotlight on him. Uh, he's all about promoting, really, uh, his star. Now, I'm not saying he's a selfish teammate. I'm just saying he's just, you know, a selfish guy. So in the sense that uh, winning – um, you know, uh, working, earning that paycheck, those types of things are, aren't very valuable to him. Uh, he's looked at this team. He's played with this team. When he's on that court, he tries, okay? But uh, given how bad the team around him has been, especially after the J.R. Smith, uh, uh, Iman Shumper trade, it's been very clear that this team is prepared for next year. So he's like, okay, well, if you guys are, you know, preparing for next year, maybe I should too. Uh, so uh, that's kind of his mentality. He did play an all-star game first because, you know, that's that's his deal. That's the type of thing he does. Uh, now he gets to sit back, get paid, uh, hope that some free agency moves get going on, get going, and then and, and hopefully he gets a better team next year. Uh, side note to this is, too, uh, when it comes to healing and injuries, uh, Melo is a little bit more uh, – uh, well, he's actually smart, but uh, it's just untraditional. He's not all for put me through this surgery, tear this up, I'll repair this, fix this. No. He's usually been a rest, rehab, ice type of a guy, not very keen on surgery. He's had a shoulder issue before. I think it was earlier last year. He decided to sit out for a while, rehab the injury, and got a lot better. And that's also what this year is about, too, now, because he, instead of getting the big-time surgery, he probably just wants to rest, rehab, do some different things. And, and if he is going to get anything done, it might be like a minor cleanup, but he's not really big on repairing his body in that way. What I didn't understand was after he made that early appearance in the first quarter, I assumed he was done for the night. And then he came back out there and played some more in the second half. I'm very surprised that the, the coaching staff of the Eastern Conference really allowed him to play as many minutes as he did. He, because he had every capability of doing it. I think the bottom line here is that Mel is healthy enough to play ball. You know, he just is. With all the but money that Nick the fan of, that, that yeah. Bill Jackson was there, I'm kind of surprised that at some point, you know, Jackson just doesn't send the message over to the, to that particular bench that he's done. That's it. Because he didn't want to. Because Melo didn't. I mean, look, I understand you completely. And in a normal situation when you have a, a player that is a little bit more team-oriented, a little bit more responsible, and in an area where a GM like Phil Jackson doesn't have people lined up outside of his office saying he should be fired, uh, in a normal situation where no one's afraid to lose their job or lose a few dollars, then, yeah, that, that should happen. So 99 times or, well, in today's age, maybe 50 times out of 100, that should totally happen. Uh, the truth is uh, the situation is a lot more delicate than it may look. Uh, Phil Jackson isn't in any type of danger of being fired, but his team is in trouble. He cannot upset his star player, Carmelo Anthony. Uh, they raised uh, all types of dollars to get this guy there and to stay for a while to build the team around him. And when it comes to little things like this, now there's big things, you know, down the road. Obviously that will be squashed, but uh, him playing around with the All-Star game in whatever way you'd like to, uh, Melo's going to do what he's going to do. And I think in this situation, Phil's, he has really no other choice but to let it slide because if there's any type of a media firestorm, 
or if he, you know, expresses his disappointment, uh, then that kind of ruptures the core of your locker room because Melo's the only guy who's guaranteed a roster spot next year, to be honest. True, and, and let's face it, now that the Knicks have parted ways with Amari Stoudemire and decided to eat the rest of that contract, um, which was a lot of money to eat, um, you know, the Knicks have certainly gutted that roster as best they possibly can, and they really are looking forward to potentially having a shot at that number one pick. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and he's hurt, you know. You, you was good friends with J.R. Smith, and uh, I think you understood the complexity of working with Amari Stoudemire, but they were good peers. And so it, it also, you know, part of that is his hurt, too, because he's got a team that he doesn't really recognize, and on top of it, they aren't very good. That's for sure. That is for sure. Wow. Uh, that's the best. Folks, that's the reason why I love having these two on is because I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back and let them go at each other. Uh, but Montel, we're going to turn it back to you. Um, what were, what was your takeaway from the All-Star Game festivities this weekend? Well, I think you do. I did what a lot of fans did. You know, when I tune into it, and, and sometimes I'll take a year off and I won't watch it. But this year I was fully engaged. Last year I was, well, last year I didn't watch it at all. But usually the way I do it is, you know, I'm all about Saturday night. You know, I like to see the dunk contest and other people viewpoint contests and skills competition. And, you know, and then see what they do, uh, you know, that little team mix they do where they have a current player, a WNBA player, an old school player, you know, all come in and they do that that competition as well. I like watching that. that that's my deal. That's my all-star weekend. And then occasionally if nothing's on, that Sunday I'll watch the full game. Uh, it's cool to see the crazy things they do and, and all that. Uh, not a lot of defense played, but not a lot of fouling. Uh, it's not a great game, but to me, you can watch it for, you know, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you get to, you know, have a little fun, but it's just not your best competitive basketball game when you see defenses and people that want it more, and it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, I've watched this a thousand times before I watched the Pro Bowl because at least we see, you know, (laughs) a little bit of desire there, but uh, in all seriousness, though, it's it's a great weekend of basketball. It's good to see a lot of things uh, that they do. They obviously have a uh, kids that offered scholarships this past weekend and had them come out and stand next to their player that was in the competition too. So uh, those types of things are fun to watch. You know, it's all about the kids. And, uh, you know, uh, Saturday was about the adults too because uh, Zach Levine was phenomenal. I think that, uh, absolutely. If, you, if, you, if there's one thing to take away from, from Saturday night, it would have been his performance in the slam dunk contest. Oh, oh yeah. He, he's done things that I haven't seen done in a dunk contest for real. Like, and for years, I mean, I'm thinking Vince Carter, the J.R. Smith year, you know, when he did it. I mean, that's that's what you look to see. You know, I'm not for all the commercialism with Blake Griffin decided to bring out a car and jump over the car. You know, no, I'm good. <laughs> you know, so uh, Levine did it the old school way. Uh, perfect score every time he dunked. Uh, that was uh, it's about as good as it gets in, this, in today's uh, era. And let's face it, with the slam dunk contest, you needed somebody like Zach Levine to really bring back uh, the popularity of that particular aspect of Saturday night. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny because going into the NBA uh, draft, uh, everyone was like, oh, you know, his verticals here, his verticals there. And I'm like, you know, I, I was a guy, I'll admit, I was like, well, I don't care. You know, this is an attract meet. I mean, his vertical, cool. What else can he do, you know? But, uh, you know, he's going to be fine player, I think, in NBA. And then obviously when the duck contest comes, I did not have this in mind, but he, he nailed it. Absolutely. Which brings me to my point about uh, Zach Levine. Uh, you look at the way the Timberwolves roster is built. Uh, obviously himself, Shabazz Muhammad, uh, Ricky Rubio. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that blockbuster trade 
to get rid of Kevin Love and in return land Andrew Wiggins. But they're still the second worst team in the league. Um, that's kind of the surprising thing in, in my eye is how can you have so much of this young talent on that roster and yet still be the second worst team in the league? Uh, and you guys got any thoughts on that? Because that's the biggest kicker for me uh, when it comes to the NBA is you would think, you know, obviously, you know, the old guys, you know, old school guys can ball. Uh, the Ray Allens, you know, Dirk Nowitzki's, uh, Tim Duncan, Kobe. Uh, but these young bucks, now you would expect them to be able to kind of put the team on their back, kind of the way LeBron did when you know when LeBron was first in Cleveland. Uh, but you're not ju- you're just not seeing that uh, truly anymore. Um, what could be some of the issues with that? Well, I, look, I think their age and experience is probably one of those issues. I mean, let's face it, Wiggins should still be in college in, in all seriousness. But I would mm-hmm. still say that. The Minnesota roster, as young as it is and even as inexperienced as it may be, is probably still in better shape than what the Knicks have going. Oh, yeah, moving forward, they are levels ahead of what the uh, right. the Knicks appear to be. And, and, and I agree completely. I think, first off, this team has, you know, a solid young core. I like Ricky Rubio. He stay healthy. He can do some things. Him and Zach Levine, the guy Kevin Martin, I'm never that high on him, but their key here is in the next draft or in free agency, if they can do it, just get yourself one real rim protector because they don't rebound well at all. And that, that's really their Achilles heel. Uh, so if they can strengthen that front court, bring in one more guy, a center, power forward, then you really got something going. But uh, I'm going to be real with you guys. Uh, even if Kevin Love does resign with Cleveland, which he totally should, and he almost has to, I mean, if this trade is going to make sense. But uh, Minnesota is going to be great in maybe a couple years. Um, I'm a huge believer in uh, Andrew Wiggins' potential. Uh, he's already miles. I mean, and, and you're right, uh, John, he should still be in college. But for a guy to come in right away and, and find a way to kind of, you know, uh, be effective to score, I was never really a believer that he could make his own shot this quickly, and he and he kind of has. Um, and, and also Anthony Bennett, you know, look out for him. And he's He's really the X factor in all of this. You know, this summer when we were talking about LeBron coming here and they're coming there uh, to Cleveland and, and that trade happening. Uh, if Anthony Bennett, um, because initially he was a small forward, if he had been drafted and played well, I don't think this LeBron to Cleveland talk would have got any real steam. It, it was because he didn't play so hot, and, and it took a lot of time. But, you know, let's not forget that, you know, had this player been – you know, maybe as advertised, they might have just taken their small forward, and, and they're very young but very talented core and just, you know, <laughs> told LeBron to not, you know, see you, buddy. You know, we're not buying. But Minnesota will be fine. Go and get a rim protector. Uh, give everything another year to uh, get together. And uh, they're going to be very deep. Um, you know, just, just give it time. I like the way they're built. Two things about Minnesota that I would say. One is I think Anthony Wiggins has a bit of a chip on his shoulder based on the way that last June's draft went. I don't think he was very happy with the way the Cavaliers handled that situation, even though they eventually got what they wanted. I think the other thing is it's going to be very difficult, just based on where the Timberwolves are located, to be able to get that high-quality free agent to want to spend the winter in Minneapolis. Exactly, exactly. And, and Angel, you, you said it best, uh, moving forward, which brings us to our next segment, Um each of you are going to have one team that you can that you can choose if you may please. But 
going into the second half of the NBA season, uh, everybody knows that this is basically crunch time. This is when uh, people start, you know, offloading their roster. They start getting ready for a playoff run, or they start building for next season. So, with that being said, Montel, I'll turn it to you first. Who do you think is primed to make a second-half run to make the playoffs or even contend in the playoffs? Okay, well, you know, I take a look at this and some of the way these teams are kind of stacking up is kind of, you know, uh, I don't know how to say indescript because I'm looking at the Western Conference, and that's, man, it's it's just going to be tough because they might have two or three teams at over 500 that is that just don't get in. And that's that's crazy, um, but a, a team moving forward that can do well. I like not necessarily to make the playoffs, but I, I really think down the stretch you're going to see Detroit play better basketball. Matter of fact, since they've traded Josh Smith, they've already played better basketball. Uh, instantly rebounds per game went up. Uh, instantly more efficient on offense. Uh, their key is to get another guy, strengthen that uh, front court as well. It really seems like rim protectors are at a premium, and this is actually a good year to get one. So uh, they they need a score, maybe a scoring big man, maybe a stretch four, maybe just a true small four. So I want to get in there, do a little bit of everything on offense and help them out. But Greg Monroe, Andre Drummond, that's going to be deadly in a few years. Um, it's really sad to see what happened to their starting point guard. I know he got hurt, Brandy Jennings. Uh, but DJ Augustine, I've seen him play all last year. And up to that point, more than capable point guard. They're very capable. So they need to just go out there and take the time. And, and just that front court should dominate. Like, I'm a huge Andre Drummond fan. He's really the next big thing to me. And I'm curious to see where it goes. For me, it's if Paul George can come back to Indiana – by, say, the first weekend in March or the second weekend in March and get himself in a basketball shape as quickly as possible, it'll be interesting to see how much that elevates the Indiana Pacers, who right now are fighting for that the last playoff spot along with five other teams in the East. But I think that Paul George could end up being the X factor that provides the Pacers with a chance to at least make the playoffs and, and become a dangerous first-round opponent for whoever they face. Well, and the, the biggest one for me, uh, Montel, I'm going to show some love. Uh, Chicago, uh, easily number one. Um, the fact that we've mentioned it time and time again, that Jimmy Butler is playing out of his mind. It's great to see that he finally got uh, all-star recognition. I felt like he should have been an all-star last year. He wasn't, but he was this year. He's been playing out of his mind. Of course, he mentioned Doug McDermott, uh, you know, playing well in that role position there. Uh, the post uh, with, you know, Paul Gasol, Joaquin Noah, and then, of course, Taj Gibson. And then, of course, you have a healthy Derrick Rose. Uh, when you look at some, you know, you look back at previous years, um, the Bulls have always kind of been that team that's always been hot in the second half. Uh, they've had either a strong to mediocrely average first half uh, to the All-Star break, and then afterwards they've just exploded um, when Derrick Rose has been the leader of that team. And I expect it to be the same way this year. Um, but another team that I like, uh, just because I can do it, is uh, the Dallas Stars or the, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. Excuse me. With uh, you know, they added Amari Stoudemire. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's a for sure deal, but all these reports going out there right now is it sounds like Amari is going to be part of that part of that team. Uh, which, when you really look truly, with them only sitting about four and a half games back, that's not bad at all. Uh, you have Dirk Nowitzki. 
Uh, you have some of those other role players that they've always had uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, San Antonio just seems like they're not, you know, you, you can never count them out, but at the same time, it looks like this year uh, they're going to be fighting for last between them and the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, so those are really two teams that I like. Um, in terms of trades, who do you think are some players or teams that you think could start offloading some of that roster weight uh, to get ready for 2015 and maybe even snag a couple of uh, first-round picks depending on what players they load? Uh, John, I'll go ahead and turn that, turn that one over to you first. Look, I, I think I think most of the teams have already made their big moves. I mean, the Celtics have already made theirs, yep. trading yep. Rondo to Dallas and trading Jeff Green to Memphis. Um, I, I think you've got too many teams in the Eastern Conference, especially as you get toward the bottom of that conference, that really think that they're still in the mix for that seventh or eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. So I think that being able to make trades, and, and the trade deadline is on Thursday at 3 o'clock, I think is going to be very difficult for a lot of teams to make. I mean, the Knicks can, can certainly dump some more if they want to, but how much more can they really can they really dump? Uh, you know, now that uh, they've taken care of Stoudemire and they've already made the trade for getting rid of J.R. Smith, and if Anthony decides not to play, um, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for – and the same thing with Minnesota. I mean, how much of that roster are you going to get rid of to uh, try and put yourself in position for next year? The Sixers, mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, they've got they don't uh, even have any talent on that really basketball tradable. team that you're not going to get rid of. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for the majority of these teams to improve themselves as that deadline gets near. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I was about to say is they don't really have anything tradable. Uh, the, the, right. the Sixers don't. <laughs> you know, like they can trade you a future, uh, but they, they, don't, they don't have anything they can trade you right now. Uh, I was just going to bring up the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, they did what they had to do. You know, they moved, shifted some weight off the roster and, and did that. Um, you know, I, I know some teams are going to kick the tires on Joe Johnson, so that could be a thing to look forward to. Yep. Uh, I think if there's anything close to a significant offer there, I don't think Brooklyn should have to think too hard about getting rid of them. Uh, this is a failed super team. Uh, they tried to do it. it. It didn't work out so hot, and so this is where they are. Uh, they decided to uh, move players, and, and it's, you know, just everything's really just been ugly, and it's unfortunate. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, Andre Karolinko was traded there, and they traded him to the Sixers, and so they've been making a lot of moves, uh, but they they also been smart with what they've done. Uh, about a year ago, they got rid of Jason Terry, Reggie Evans. This year, they've gotten rid of a few guys, and I just don't think they're done. I think they're trying to get some money off that, uh, you know, off the books, and and, and really start fresh. Uh, they already have a solid, somewhat solid backcourt with Brooke Lopez and Mason Plumley, so you got something to build around. The Celtics have an interesting situation in that they've got still two expiring contracts that they could do something with. One is Brandon Bass, the other one is Marcus Thornton. But they're only a game and a half out of the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference. So since they've already made their two major moves, do they make a couple of more or do they keep this team together and see if they can't make the playoffs? I think I think you keep them together. Um, you know, when you're in the East, anything can happen. I mean, right. seriously, you're fighting for an eight seed. Anything can happen. And I know a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers or whoever's going to want to stop them. You know, that's fine because you got to remember, this is a young head coach they have in Boston. I believe this is, what, first, second season, second season maybe. So it's going to be incredible for him to get there, get to the playoffs, and those type of things have to happen. Now, one thing I have heard is that there's a possibility that maybe not their starters, but part of the bench might go. Uh, there's a chance that Tayshawn Prince might be in trade talks. I know specifically the Bulls have been somewhat interested. They're looking at him uh, just as another guy to play on the wing. Obviously, he can defend. His length is very good. So 
but yeah, I don't think they move a major piece here. And and why would you? Because some of this is you know some of this is good. You know, some Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart. I mean, they they got something going on. Um, I, I expect Brandon Bass to be there only because what it would probably cost other teams to get him would be probably too much. Because I think. Boston, if they're going to trade him, they're going to move him. You know, some of them set themselves up big time for next year, be it a first-round pick, be it a, a really young, big, or a young, uh, uh, small forward. So they're they're going to do something. But uh, if it is, it's going to be very minor. I will say this. You do wonder what last Wednesday's victory over the Atlanta Hawks did, coming back from down 18 points to win that game at the buzzer. You do wonder if that has changed the mindset of the organization in terms of just giving this team an opportunity to experience what making a playoff run is all about and giving these young guys the opportunity to learn what that type of basketball is from what uh, the regular season really is. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and it, and that, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was phenomenal. So it, it's going to be curious. It's going to be fun to see what they can do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see how it works out. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, both of you guys made great points. Uh, it's easily things that we're going to have to keep an eye on. I do have to ask because, again, people love to hear it. Uh, in each of your guys' eyes, Montel, I'll go first. Who is the front runner for you to take home the championship this year? Uh, this is a tough one, man. Every Everybody's playing good. Uh, man, do I want to go dark horse here? Okay, well, truth be told, you know, I'm looking at the way some of these teams go, and I, I hate it. I don't want to say it, but you know, I really, I really think Memphis will do it. And and I'll, I'll say you guys on this. Um, hey, this is a team that's that's really played together forever. I absolutely love the way they're built. I love the way they're put together, and I think this is the type of scenario where they can actually succeed. Um, they are first in the NBA in points allowed. So that defense has just been incredible. Uh, they share the ball well. You know, they're somewhere in the top 10, 11 teams in assists per game. And, and all these guys, you know, there's no real superstar there. So they don't pass necessarily the eye test. But when they come together, they are so co- well coached. In that front court, Zach Randolph, Marcus Hall has been solid enough. You know, you look at Jeff Green and Courtney Lee. I mean, they defend better than really anyone. Literally anyone, you know, so they're the hardest team to score on right now. And if you can do that in the West, uh, you're going to be right there when it's said and done, uh, even without a true superstar. And, and and they're headed up by Mike Conley. He's, he's the leader on that team. The most underrated point guard in all of basketball, Mike Conley. So I like I think they'll be right there when it's all said and done. And I think if they don't, then it'll probably be a team like the Spurs that just kind of outgrinds them and gets there. I think we can, uh, the three of us can safely say that there's going to be no team from the Eastern Conference that's going to win this championship, regardless of what the Cavaliers are doing. Uh, I just think that, that the West is just too loaded, too many good teams. Yes. So once yes. that playoff begins, it's just going to be a war. Uh, you know, Golden State right now, yeah. the, for them, the worst possible first-round opponent they could see is Oklahoma City. They would certainly rather play Phoenix. They'd rather play New Orleans. They'd rather play anybody else but Oklahoma yep. City. I think that's the depth of the Western Conference, and I think that's why, you know, like you say, someone like Memphis is certainly somebody that could slide in there. I still like the San Antonio Spurs simply because of the experience that they bring uh, to the table. They understand what, what playoff basketball is all about. They've been through the wars. They know how to do it. And I think if given an opportunity, that's a team that uh, can still make a run despite the age that's beginning to show on that team. 
Yeah, and, and I agree, and, and just, you know, a small part of what you said. I know, you know, the, everyone looks at the Spurs like, well, you know, they don't look too high right now. The key for the Spurs, they just want to get to the playoffs. You know, when they right. get there, you know, the minutes will go up. Everyone will kick it into a whole other gear. But the key is just to get there, and they're going to get there. Absolutely, and and the scary part is they could get there as a seventh seed, and, um, uh, you know, I mean, that's the kind of depth, as I said, this conference provides. If you've got San Antonio at seven, you potentially have Oklahoma City at eight. Ay, ay, ay. And the funny part is they're they're about a couple games better than what the Bulls. The Bulls are like the third team in the East. Santonio's number seven in the West with thirty four and nineteen as their record. That's think of, think of it this incredible. way: in the Eastern Conference, if you get to thirty five wins, you're going to make the playoffs. In yeah. the West, if you get to fifty, you may not make the playoffs. That's a sweep <laughs> of fifteen games in one league. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. It really is. So we have Montel with Memphis and John, nobody in the East. I am a homer, so I am going to go with Deb Buzz, just because I'm a homer. But speaking of Chicago, it's actually getting closer to baseball season uh, as the pitchers and catchers will be reporting this week to their spring training locations. Uh, which now can start us and prompt us to start talking about spring training. Uh, obviously, the San Francisco Giants are going to be the team that everybody wants to keep an eye on. Kansas City Royals, uh, the uh, Los Angeles Angels, uh, the Seattle Mariners have made some you know big spending money. The Chicago Cubs have made some big spending money. Uh, of course, everybody's going to see how Manny Machado comes back with the Baltimore Orioles. But with that being said, first, John, what are you looking for out of the Red Sox? Heading into well, I think with the, with the additions of Pablo Sandoval and with Hanley Ramirez, this is a team that's probably going to score a ton of runs. It's going to have a middle of the order that's going to be very difficult for pitching rotations to have to deal with. When you add David Ortiz and Mike Napoli to that, that's going to be a very difficult three through six part of the order to have to, uh, to go through. Uh, but it's a team that uh, is still being questioned in terms of its starting rotation. The guys like Wade Miley, Rick Porcello, and Clay Buckholtz uh, are not being considered as number one guys. The Red Sox really didn't pursue necessarily going after a number one guy. And so uh, it's a rotation that uh, is filled with two and three guys that they hope will emerge and become a staff that can uh, go out there every fifth day and do their job a bullpen that, uh, for the most part, is uh, is still intact from what it was last year. Um, and hopefully uh, it's a team that can stay healthy, and I, I think that's the other part of it. They've upgraded themselves at third base with Sandoval uh, over Will Middlebrooks. Uh, you know, Mookie Betts is probably going to play on a regular basis out in that outfield. Uh, can Hanley Ramirez play left field? I think that's going to be an interesting question that needs to be uh, solved. And the other one, I think the wild card of it all, is what the Red Sox do with Shane Victorino. Uh, at the moment, he really doesn't have a position, and that's an awful lot of money to be sitting on the bench. So what do the Red Sox do with him? Uh, does he really get a legitimate chance to be the everyday right fielder this year, or do they find a way to uh, showcase him in spring training to give him a better chance with somebody else? Well, and John, I know you're not a, a big social media guy, but there's a picture floating around, and I'm sure it probably was posted in the Boston uh, newspapers and even some of the local newspapers around the area, but it looks like the fat panda 
did exactly that in the off season as he looked extremely husky. Uh, <laughs> it's not surprising. Much, I mean, he's, 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 than what you expect Pablo Sandoval to look like. Now we've known that earlier in his career with the San Francisco Giants that his weight was an issue. He was able to cut it down, and then of course you look at what he was able to do when he was able to drop that weight. But I do have to bring that up. Do you raise a little bit of a concern with some of the money that you have given this player in the fact that he showed up to workouts, you know, the voluntarily workouts, out of shape, and the fact oh, I- that it looked like that he put a keg under his T-shirt before he started doing his field drills. Absolutely, and, and I think that that uh, had to have been a concern of the Red Sox, maybe not as much of a concern as it should have been, but absolutely. Uh, you know, Sandoval's had weight issues pretty much his entire career with the Giants. For the most part, he's been able to get away with it uh, and has contributed to the Giants winning their three world championships. But, yeah, his, his weight is always going to be a concern, and I think that uh, uh, the Red Sox probably are not going to be happy when they – uh, they see him over the weekend and, and when workouts really officially begin. But, um, you know, Sandoval has always found a way to get around it. Uh, it's not the conventional way to do it, but he's just not a conventional player. Exactly. And and he's a third baseman, too. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's the good news. Is that, hey, I was just about to say that, uh, you know, he plays – um, you know, his, his weight goes up and down. And sometimes, you know, when you get into camp, you get out of camp, you get on with the season, uh, you know, just, just the stress and, and the grind of the season is going to take a little bit of that off to where it's not, you know, uh, above average for him. And and second, you know, he plays a quick switch uh, position on defense. You know, it's third base. Uh, either you get it or you don't. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have to range left or range right. Uh, so I think that's the good news for him is that uh, our defense is not going to take away from his play any. Uh, he's still a solid infielder at whatever weight. And uh, hitting-wise, I do have curious uh, – I am curious about, you know, his base running and, and where that's going to go. But uh, other than that, you know, I think it'll be all right. Look, I, I think that Pablo Sandoval is a playoff-type baseball player. I, I think that's what he gears himself for. Uh, and hopefully with coming to Boston that that's something he does on a regular basis. Uh, he's not a guy that's necessarily all that concerned about the 162 games as much as he is about really October and, and how you get to October. And I think that uh, that's what the Red Sox are hoping for. That's what they're banking on. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to monitor his weight. There's no question about it, but I don't think at the moment they're overly concerned about it, but if it continues to, uh, uh, to be something that hinders him as spring training continues, they may have to change their thinking. Of course, they're going to have to. And the only reason I say that is, again, you know, uh, like Montel, you said, it is a fast twitch position. But, again, uh, depending on where they're going to have him hitting in the lineup, I mean, I'm going to want this guy to run some bases. Uh, you don't need another David Ortiz uh, who can stretch out a triple if he has to, but you're not going to really want him to do that, uh, if you guys well, know what I'm saying. Yeah, but Josh, let's face it. This is not a Red Sox team that is built for speed. This is a team that's going to be built for power. Uh, oh, yeah. They've got you know very little speed at, at the top of the order. They've really got very little speed at the bottom of the order, and they've got no speed in the middle of the order. So <laughs> you know, stolen bases is not something that this team is going to, to rely on as part of their offensive attack. If this team can go from first to third, if this team can go from second to home, I think that's pretty much as far as their speed element is going to be. But this isn't a team that's going to steal bases. This is a team that's going to want to hit home runs, hit extra base hits, and, and try and drive in as many runs as they possibly can. They're going to try and mash their way to a division championship. 
Yeah, and, and then in that division, uh, some very hitter-friendly ballparks, including their own. And, and, and uh, I, I think, yeah, I agree with you on all points. I, I'm curious to see how it works out. Uh, Boston is, is going to be a good hitting team. And, and just that AL East is going to be a dogfight. Uh, I mean, Blue Jays are out maybe, but <laughs> that's really well, all I can I mean, point to. Okay, I think the problem for the Red Sox is going to be during those periods of time during the season when – You've got three or four guys that are in slumps. I think that's when this team is really going to show what they can't do. But I think that when you have the lineup hitting on all cylinders, uh, I think the sky's the limit, and there'll be some pitches that are going to take some mighty beatings uh, going up against these guys from time to time. Yep, yep. Hey, Montel, uh, you, uh, obviously being a Chicago guy, you know, the White Sox, the Cubs, uh, who is a team that you're going to be keeping an eye on through the spring training process? Uh, well, I'll be, you know, rolling with the Sox. You know, that's that's my team. And, and I'm curious to see because, first off, uh, you know, Sox camp is going to be fun to watch because, you know, they got some young players, they got some older players. Uh, keep in mind, uh, former Dodgers starter Brad Penny will be in camp. Uh, he's 36 years old. He's just looking to get in and find a way either in the bullpen or maybe as a spot starter down the road. So, uh, you know, I'll be I'll be watching that for sure. Um, also, another thing is that uh, they're also going to, you know, bring in some of their younger guys, you know, Sky Roden, the pitcher they drafted. Uh, what's he going to do? Is he going to be ready by middle season? Is he going to be ready in spring training? Uh, all the lights are going to be on this guy because he can either set off this rotation right now or he can come back and work his way through the bullpen, do it the slow way. Uh, not to say that that's such a bad thing, uh, but everyone seems to be excited about him and everything he can do. Uh, also, I'd like to see the Sox go in and, and get a get a backup catcher presence that's solid. Uh, Flowers is a better defenseman this year. I think he will be this year. Towards the end of last year, he showed flashes when he was healthy. Uh, but they really need a guy to come in, be a decent backup, and hit. Uh, really wish they'd take a look at maybe Deanna Navarro or, or someone else, but uh, it looks like that's maybe a no. So, uh, yeah, right now, uh, those are the guys I'm looking at. And, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe another pitcher will emerge. I'm really excited about the bullpen as well. So, uh, it's going to be a fun camp. Look, I think the team that really, to me, is generating the interest, and that is the San Diego Padres. I'm just shocked that they were able to sign James Shields to a four-year, $70 million contract. I didn't see that coming in any way, shape, or form. And it's a team that has spent money. It's a team that's made some deals in the off year. Uh, Shields and then the trade for Matt Kemp during the winter meetings. It's a team that has changed their philosophy. They're, they're trying to uh, convince their fan base that they're now about winning and, and trying to become a first-division team, a playoff contending team, as opposed to the second-division team that they've been for several years now. Uh, they are going to be very interesting because they've spent some money. They've appeared to have changed their philosophy about how they want to go about doing their business on the field and off, and we'll see if it pays off. Yeah, and it, it sure needs to. I mean, I think the most miraculous thing is that this team was a 77-win team last year. Uh, yeah. They they were at the bottom, the very bottom. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. They were dead last in every offensive statistic last year, or, well, the big ones. So, run scored, you know, uh, on base percentage, all those things, you know, uh, dead, rock bottom, batting average, slugging percentage. I mean, they just couldn't hit the ball off a tee. So I think getting Matt Kemp, and I was expecting to maybe make another splashy move, but it looks like they might be okay. You know, they got up and, you know, and left, Kemp and right. I mean, they might be able to mix some things up and do something, but I still want one more good bat in that lineup before I see what they can do. But, 
uh, I guess when you're pitching that great, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, yeah, you've been you're talking about a team that may end up playing a lot of low-scoring one-run, two-run type games. So that pitching staff is going to have to hold up as well as that bullpen, too. Um, you're probably right. I, I think another bat might be something that could really put this team potentially over the top. But at the same time, how much money do they have? I didn't think they had this kind of money to begin with, what they, what they gave Shields. So uh, apparently they've either been printing money on the side or they've been uh, uh, bankrolling themselves for quite some time to make the splash that they've made this offseason. <laughs> or they're just gambling on themselves and yeah. hoping they make it back in ticket sales. I That's mean, right. Who knows? And, and I agree with you on that one, uh, Montel and John Bolta. I think uh, because when you look at it, James Shields could have potentially be wearing uh, the pinstripes uh, at Wrigley Field this season, uh, which is just about how close that deal was uh, before he ended up uh, signing the contract to the Padres. Um, like you said, I think that the amount of money that they spent this year is intriguing. Uh, it's obviously going to drive fans to the ballpark, getting some big names like, you know, James Shields and Matt Kemp. Uh, they also have some good young talent coming up uh, this year. But I kind of want to go with you a little bit on that one, John, in terms of teams that I'm kind of really interested to see. And it is going to be the Red Sox because it always seems like they're down one year and then they're up the next year. Uh, in, in, or, or they're down one year and then the next year they win, uh, you know, the World Series. Uh, since they've been able to do it in uh, 2004. So they're the kind of the guys that I want to look at. Uh, keeping it back toward, uh, you know, out in your area uh, in Baltimore, John, what's the word on Manny Machado and his recovery uh, from his injury and how he's going to be looking? Uh, is there anything new that they've heard about him, whether or not he's going to be delayed heading into spring training or anything like that? I, I Look, if you're an Oriole fan, you don't want Manny Machado to be delayed. Um, I mean, they really need him in that lineup to be playing every day and to be healthy. So I would suspect that the Orioles will take it slow with him, especially in the early stages of camp, and probably start to ramp it up with him as you get toward uh, St. Patrick's Day in the second half of training camp. Um, there's no rush, obviously, in the early stages, and I think they'll take it very slow and careful with him. They need Manny Machado to play uh, a full season for them and to give them the kind of not only offensive production that he can give them, but also the solid defensive play at third base. I mean, this kid's an all-star, and they really need him to be at that level if the Orioles are going to defend this championship and get back to the playoffs. Exactly. He's an exciting young player. He's one of those players like the Mike Trouts and the Bryce Harpers that uh, anytime you see a highlight of his uh, on TV, uh, I feel like, me personally, I feel like I have to drop everything and watch it because uh, you just don't know what he's going to do, whether he's going to wow you or not. Um, but you, you can't talk baseball truly without talking about the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and the well, fact you can, that, but, you know, why? Exactly. And the fact <laughs> that it's been 100-plus years uh, since they've even smelt a World Series, yet alone a championship, which brings me uh, to my question to you guys. Anthony Rizzo, uh, the young star first baseman for the Chicago Cubs, has been publicly outspoken about it uh, this year, saying that he does expect the Chicago Cubs to do great things in 2015 and win the World Series. Um, back when that was said in early January, uh, mid-January, people might have thought he was crazy. But looking at some of the talent that they added in terms of uh, 
you know, not just on the field, but getting Joe Madden as their manager. Uh, and then, of course, you get uh, John Lester as your pitcher. And then, of course, you look at their their prospects and their, you know, their, their farm league. Uh, they have the best farm league system, according to minorleague.com, which is uh, partners with majorleaguebaseball.com. Uh, they have the best minor league system uh, in the entire uh, Major League Baseball. So with that being said, is 2015 the year that the Chicago Cubs are finally going to win the World Series? John, I'll, I'll let you open up with that one. No. But <laughs> but I think that Cub fans need to be very, very excited about the prospects of this team. You're right. Their minor league system has upgraded itself significantly. There is talent there that's going to be uh, sprinkled into the major league uh, uh, ball club this year, uh, and there's more on the way. Uh, I think Anthony Rizzo, you know, saying what he said, I think that was during their, their Fan Fest weekend, and uh, so he decided to, uh, um, I think, go a little overboard with suggesting that the Cubs could win this year. But I think this is a team that is not far away from being a playoff contending team and a team that could contend for a world championship again. I would think that this, is, this Cup team should be a, a 500 ball club at least this year. I think that the talent does suggest that they could do that. And there's no doubt that Joe Madden is a guy who understands, based on his days in Tampa Bay, how to orchestrate and operate with a young team. Uh, he's going to do his, his crazy road trip uh, themes that he did in Tampa to try and build the, the unity and the bond that a team is going to need to a 162-game schedule. So Joe Madden understands and knows what he's getting into. And so did John Lester, too, by the way. Um, you know, Lester went through this with the Red Sox, and although they had won a world championship by the time that Lester finally became a part of a significant part of the rotation in 07, nevertheless, when Lester was drafted by the Red Sox, he understood the culture and the environment that he was getting into, and it's the same kind of culture and environment that he's going to get into in Chicago with the Cubs. Uh, there's a, a trust level between Lester and Theo Epstein, or the, uh, uh, the president of that ball club, that uh, uh, really, I think, in the end, persuaded Lester to, uh, to move to Chicago and become a Cub and uh, see if he can to bring the same kind of magic to Chicago that he did while he was here with the Red Sox. But... It's not a Cub team that's ready to contend yet, but they're not far away. Ouch, John. I was really hoping that you were going to let all those Cub fans off easy. Uh, Montel, uh, you being in a Chicago win, what do you have to say about the hopes that the Chicago Cubs could potentially win the World Series this year? Or do they even have a shot? No, but but take it no with shades of gray. So no, they they won't win one or you know be in that final matchup. But you know the the Cubs have the best you know farm team uh, in, in in the league, and they've they've taken their time and really worked on it. I mean you know, but uh, in all seriousness though, they they've uh, if they can get eighty wins, maybe up to eighty five, it's a major victory because that means you're right there. And it's not like uh, you're one of these older teams in the windows closing. Uh, it's the opposite way for the Cubs. The window's opening. Uh, they're starting to get players in the right positions to know how to play. I was really, really watching to see if uh, if uh, their GM would go ahead and, you know, I was, I was just going to see if Theo would 
you know, put all, put all his tips or his chips on the table and kind of pushed him forward. And I wanted to see him get James Shields because if he did that, then that meant that he he was ready for playoffs and he was thinking because that means you need that extra starter down the road. So uh, he didn't do it, or at least he didn't want to break the bank to do it, but he was right there. So I think that tells you enough about this team and where they're headed. And he's the type of guy where, you know, uh, and this is why I like him so much as a GM. Uh, I also like Rick Hahn, too, but going back to Epstein, he's the type of guy where he'll look at the situation and he'll realize that every offseason or even during season when people talk about trades and moves to make, sometimes there isn't a trade to make. Sometimes there isn't a signing. So sometimes you just wait and you wait and then you strike big. And I think that's kind of what he's been doing. He's been picking his battles. We don't got Miguel Montero. I mean, they're doing so many positive things. And I don't think you can get mad at anyone if you just go home and say, hey, this is 80-84 win team. And, uh, you know, next year, though, you know, and, and really mean it when you say wait till next year. <laughs> so I look, think that's the look. The model that Theo Epstein's using is the same model that he used when he was here in Boston with the Red Sox that created the 04 and then eventually the 07 <laughs> championship teams. He's doing it in Chicago. It's going to take a little more time for that model to eventually mature the way that it did here in Boston. But I think once it does, I think Cub fans are going to be very happy with the product that they're going to see. And the biggest thing for me, uh, I agree with both of you guys. Uh, I think Anthony Rizzo was a little bit uh, overzealous by saying something like that. But you have to look at what they've done. And, John, you were right. Uh, the model that he's using is spectacular. The fact that they've been able to basically build, you know, their farm league or minor league system uh, through trades and through the draft. I mean, here's some of the notable players uh, that they have either traded for or drafted. They drafted Chris Bryant. They traded for Addison Russell. They drafted Jorge Soldier. By the way, Chris Bryant and Addison Russell are ranked one and three in Kylie McDaniel's uh, top 200 prospects, uh, with Chicago having 11 prospects overall. Uh, they, for, they traded for Kyle Schwarber, who was at 21. They traded for C.J. Edwards, who was at 64. They drafted Albert Almarola at, 90, at 92. And then, of course, at 124, they had Dewan Underwood, and at 125, Pierce Johnson, both pitchers who they drafted later in rounds uh, over the last couple seasons. And then you look at some of the players that they've already moved up. A Starling Castro. Uh, they did get rid of Josh. You know, they finally got rid of Josh Vetters, uh, which couldn't have happened anytime sooner. Um, you look at Anthony Rizzo, some of these young stars. And then, of course, Javi Baez. Javi Baez coming up last year and having a, a tremendous second half uh, in terms of being able to actually display his power. I mean, his first, his first at-bat, he hit the ball 474 feet uh, in Denver. Uh, at Coors Field. So that kind of just shows you the type of power that this team is going to have and just the type of youth that this team is going to have uh, for years to come. Um, but I, I do agree with both of you guys. I do think they are potentially a year or two away, but I do think they are a team that uh, you finally aren't going to be able to roll up to Wrigley Field or you're not going to be able to roll up to whatever ballpark you're playing in uh, when you're playing the Cubs and be like, oh, yeah, this should be an easy win this year. Uh, I just – with the way that Epstein is building this roster, the fact that now, again, like you mentioned, and we've all reiterated, they have John Madden as their manager, or Joe Madden as their manager, uh, they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, this roster is getting more solid as it, as it comes. There is a report out there that there are still talks with the Philadelphia Phillies on acquiring Cole Hamels. Uh, oh if you're able God. to do that, 
that's going to be uh, either interesting in terms of, John, I heard that uh, the oh my god wasn't an exciting, it was actually uh, like, what are the Chicago Cubs doing? <laughs> exactly. That would be the worst thing that the Cubs could do because that's going to cost them prospects. And I think that if you're Theo Epstein, I think you need to value those prospects and stay away from a guy like Cole Hamels. And, and why? And personally, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, I know I know Hamels myself is, is aging, but why stay away from a guy who? Uh, I mean, obviously he can still play at a, at a very high level. I agree. Cole Hamels can still pitch. I agree, and he can still win games. But I don't think the Cubs are at that point yet where making that kind of a deal is going to uh, to put them over the top in terms of a playoff contention or even uh, a, a divisional uh, championship. I mean, that division is still, it's still run by the Cardinals. I mean, let's face it, uh, it's still run by them, and then comes everybody else. I think that um, that's a deal oh, that you could possibly wait, make in July if the Cubs... Oh, no, I, look, I, I think that division about, is still run by the Cardinals. Uh, I, I still think it's the Cardinals. I, I still think it's them. <laughs> uh, I just think that... <laughs> The Cardinals yeah. always find a way to put themselves in contention to win that division championship, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I will say this about the Cubs, and let's face it, the Phillies want to get rid of Cole Hamels because they need to get rid of him. They need to get rid of that money so that they can yeah. begin the process of finally rebuilding yeah. that team, which they yeah. should have done four or five years ago. Yeah, uh, and, and that's and why these Cole Hamel rumors have been going out there left and right with every team you can possibly think of. Cole exactly. Hamels is the guy that will get traded when July 31st arrives. But it's, you know, you're just going to have to wait until July 31st for some team to finally pony up and give up the kind of prospects that the Phillies are looking for to finally make this deal. Hopefully it's not the Cubs, because I do think that that's a deal you could make next year, not this year. Exactly, and that's the type of guy you can use to provide a little depth to the back end of your rotation. A team, a, a team like the, you know, uh, a team like the Sox, you know, there's a team uh, like the Orioles that could definitely be in the mix and do it just to get that number four, number five guy to help you get the push down the stretch. Uh, Hamels can still pitch, absolutely. But, yeah, my thing here is uh, not now. I think it shows too much desperation uh, with the way the Cubs are set up and the fact that they were very close to getting James Shields and they did not understand. But this is a team that, you know, just, just put them on the field, see where it goes. Uh, exactly. The absolutely. They, yeah, and, and and who knows? You know, some of these guys might surprise you in the back end of the rotation. Uh, they, they'd have to if the Cubs are going to, you know, meet their, you know, now raised expectations. So get to 500, get over 500, what have you. And uh, the Phillies, absolutely. They sat on this for too long. They tried to do it. I knew when they traded for Holiday, it'd be a mistake, and it was a mistake. And I knew when, uh, you know, Cliff Lee, it, it's tragic the way everything fell down for them. But the bottom line is, you know, uh, they were – they were planning to just keep waiting on this and waiting on this and working on it, but there's really nothing you can do now other than just take a sledgehammer to that team and start from the bottom. And, uh, yeah, you're right, uh, Johnny. they they got to trade him first, and when you do that, then maybe they can find their legs and, and see what else they can, you know, salvage. And, look, they, they, the Phillies still have one more problem, and his name is Ryan Howard. That's not going anywhere. <laughs> That's not going anywhere. And, unfortunately, because of that. the amount of money they gave him – who is going to take on that contract? That's what I'm saying. They, they got to, you know, they can, they have no choice with that one. Nobody's going to trade for Ryan Howard. I don't care what shape your team is in. I don't care what you guys can accomplish. You can either, you know, you, you can try to dump this guy. It would, it would cost you more to cut him than it would to keep him and watch him strike out. Uh, it's, right. it's really, it's really up to you. But 
I I think they keep him and just hope it turns around. But truth be told, is you know it's you know he's he's done. <laughs> I mean he's he's done on that team at that contract. Uh, and, and man, talk about a guy who just got up there quickly. I felt like just yesterday, one of the hottest hitters in baseball, and he's still okay. Just that bat got slow in a hurry. Um, you know, not only that, but the Achilles injury that he suffered the last game of the regular season. Mm-hmm. I forget which mm-hmm. year it was. I think that really began his downfall. The Phillies are a team that after they won that World Series, instead of being smart and gradually uh, extending some of their prime players like Rollins and Utley and Howard and the rest, they just went nuts and just threw out a ton of money to these guys and a ton of years, and it's just come back to just blow up in their face. Yeah, no, it was it was a bad idea, and and now I mean he's just an eyesore financially on their books, and no no one's trading for this guy. So like I said before, he's changed to you. You know, uh, you can work on moving Hamels, but but you you've got Howard for sure. <laughs> and with that, I mean I, I don't really know uh, what else I can say, folks. Again, uh, just basically let them sit back and, and go to work. Uh, good job on that, boys. Um, and that's basically going to wrap up our baseball talk here and, and the first uh, hour of our show. You are listening to the flagship show on NGSC Sports Radio, and it's powered by NGSC Sports. Uh, make sure you guys stay tuned for the second half of the hour. We'll be talking some NHL hockey with our NHL analyst, Jamie Council. And then, of course, uh, with your host and one of your co-hosts being the senior analyst uh, for the NFL draft, you cannot – stop talking about the NFL draft. So we will preview uh, the NFL scouting combine. Um, but with that being said, we'll take a quick oh, break. No, this, this should be interesting. I, I can't wait to hear this. Of course, we are back at the flagship show. I am your host, Joshua Zimmer, joined by Montel Hardy and John Doucette. Again, welcome to the second hour. Before we get into talking about the NFL scouting combine and being joined by our very own uh, Jamie Council for anything and everything NHL and hockey, uh, Montel, I think it's time that uh, we do our most popular segment and uh, one of the better segments out there uh, in my opinion for real so John what do you got for us uh, this week the city of Los Angeles it appears is finally going to get an NFL franchise back and it appears it's going to be the St. Louis Rams Uh, they've secured the land 
It looks like the financing aspect of this deal is, is pretty much done. And it looks like groundbreaking is going to take place sooner rather than later to provide the city of Los Angeles with their return of football from uh, the National Football League. What's interesting about this is, is that the owner of the St. Louis Rams is part of the group that uh, purchased the land. And also, I guess, in a rather interesting and, and maybe even somewhat sly way, has also uh, decided to provide a campaign contribution to the mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, a rather interesting move to make. I think I, maybe that was to sweeten the pot. Maybe it was to make sure that this deal was not going to fall through. Uh, or maybe it's just that he likes the guy's political agenda. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's a very interesting and, and, and the kind of move that I think uh, I'm sure that people in, in St. Louis are probably having a hard time with, maybe even head-scratching, uh, to try and figure out why this team wants to leave St. Louis so bad and head back to Los Angeles where they originally came from. But it appears that that's going to be a, uh, a formality once the groundbreaking is done. But I, I do think that uh, when you mix politics with uh, uh, building a stadium, it's always a very dangerous thing. And uh, here would be another example of uh, probably two things that don't necessarily mix very well for real. I've been waiting for for somebody to, to bring this up because I just don't understand the concept of trying to get a team back in Los Angeles. I understand that they have an enormous market value uh, in terms of being able to merchandise and things like that. And like we've already mentioned on previous shows uh, that I haven't even hosted that I've been on with Ralph, uh, we've talked about that the NFL has basically turned into a uh, bloodthirsty monopoly. Uh, they want to do nothing but make money, and that's about it. And so I can understand the move to Los Angeles. However, John, do you think it will be the San Diego Chargers that move? Because there's been a report out there that the Chargers are one of the teams that might be willing to move, or do you think it will be the St. Louis Rams? I do think it'll be the St. Louis Rams, just based on the fact that that was the team that was was originally in Los Angeles. Now, the San Diego Chargers also have the same problem. They don't have a lease at the moment. They want to get out of Qualcomm Stadium because it's old. It's a stadium that uh, certainly needs to be uh, seriously upgraded, and it appears that the city of San Diego just doesn't want to do it, nor does the city of San Diego want to build the, uh, the, uh, the Chargers a brand-new stadium, which I think is also interesting considering the fact that the San Diego Padres got their new ballpark, so why give it to the Padres and not give one to the San Diego Chargers? But for the time being, and maybe it's because we're talking about a city that's become somewhat cash-strapped, that they don't seem to be interested in providing the Chargers with what they've already given the Padres, which is a new facility. Well, I guess we're going to have to just keep an eye out for it. I personally think that... Uh, it won't be the St. Louis Rams just due to the fact that they've already, it seems from what uh, reports circulating and everything like that, that they've already started making talks about getting this whole stadium uh, renovation and actually the new, the new stadium site uh, planned and figured out. So obviously it's going to be interesting. I highly doubt we're going to see an expansion team just due to the fact that that'll push the NFL to 33 teams. But yeah, I agree. I agree. We're not talking about an expansion team. We are talking about one that, that exists. Absolutely. So could uh, 
could Jacksonville be that team, for instance, if they can't uh, turn their attendance situation around in Jacksonville? Would they be one that would consider the idea of going from one coast to the other and trying all over again? True. See, and, I don't and, know. And that's uh, another thing, Tim, too, is uh, the fact that, you know, you know, Shad Khan has virtually put his entire life into that team since he bought the team only a couple of years ago. I mean, some of the stadium uh, upgrades that he's done, the fact uh, if you have the opportunity, if not, go to jaguars.com and check it out. The new plans uh, for a three-level uh, practice facility, um, it kind of, to me, it looks looks kind of funny. Uh, but, again, when we're talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars, what isn't funny? Uh, so it seems like it will fit in. But By the way, don't like forget that, about the Oakland Raiders. That's another team that doesn't have a lease with their with their stadium, which, quite yeah. frankly, is dumb. And that's who I was about to bring up as well. And, um, and, and, that's another and, one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know. That would be funny. You know, one team moving, you know, out of California, another team moves uh, into California. That would be fun to watch, too. Jaguars, I don't know. Whoever's going to make the move to California, I think it's going to be initially a tough sell. I mean, this is a team that has everything. It is a state that's had everything going on. Great baseball teams. It's a great basketball team. So, uh, if football teams, especially the number that they'd be at now with another team, uh, I don't think they're going to, you know, pack the stadiums to see the, you know, the, the Jaguars. I think it has to be a team like the Rams. It's a little bit more potential rich, um, you know, because they're going to have to get in there and compete for the market share. I mean, we're talking about uh, television deals, radio, uh, in addition to attendance. Uh, they have to be able to hold their own. And And let's face it, with the Rams going back to Los Angeles, if that's the way this works out, um, you don't have to change the uniform. You don't have to change the, the logo. There's nothing to change because it's still the same uniform and the same logo for the most part that they had when they were in Los Angeles in the first place. Plus, let's face it, you have the entertainment community out there that would certainly show up in droves to see an NFL franchise back in that city. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And I think that's, again, I think those, you know, that's obviously a situation that we're going to have to keep uh, on tabs uh, with open eyes and ears as if this truly is starting to come to light and pick up steam again, uh, you would expect that you're going to hear a lot of it within the next couple months uh, for sure. Montel, what do you have for us this week? For real? Man, you know, it's it's funny because I was just sitting up here thinking about this like every year, or no, I'm sorry, every year, every week we do this, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm always going to think, man, this week, what am I going to, I don't really have to think for all in the five minutes. I don't even have to research. You know, there's just that number of awful headlines around sports that a normal person would have an issue with, and, and I'm going to be a normal person having an issue uh, with Jerry Jones and what's going on in Dallas. Uh, we all know the task they have in front of them, the guys they want to re- resign and bring back. But there have been recent reports that because of character concerns, the Cowboys may not feel comfortable signing Des Bryant to, you know, that that long-term deal that he honestly deserves. That is erroneous. All of it is just awful. That that was an abysmal showing by their front office because Jerry Jones, I mean, seriously, corporate America wins with this one because Jerry Jones has been on the record saying, you know, he loves Des Bryant, he loves the way he plays, but at the same time, I love you, Des, but don't don't sign with Rock Nation because they might make me pay you more. You know, now it's I love you, Des, but hey, uh, <laughs> you, you yeah, apparently I'm going to tell the whole world that you can't keep your, you know, behavior off the field in line and whatever you do at your own home in line, even though technically he's been okay since he's been in Dallas. But it's just 
it, it's terrible. They're trying to denigrate his character to make him more affordable. All of it is a power move to try to gain some steam contract-wise, and it is, it, it, it's ugly. I mean, if your dad's obviously, you're just sitting up here listening to that, and you're saying, you know, he owes me a couple more million. I decided for that for that awful comment, and and I think that's what it'll come down to is that uh, that they're gonna pay Des a lot, and there's no getting around it. And if you're having some issues with it, you know, solve it in house. Talk to him privately uh, over the phone. Invite him to your office, or put some clauses in that contract to say if you get arrested, uh, you can't get this uh, you know ten million dollar bonus. It won't kick in next year. Plenty of other ways to work around it. Instead, it's just an ugly. Uh, just PR battle, or at least that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, just for real, you know, Jerry Jones, like as much money as you make, uh, with that eyesore of a stadium you have, you mean to tell me you don't want to call up a few million to give your best overall player a much-deserved extension? I mean, it's just disgusting on every level, especially when you consider the fact that Dallas just really got over the hump. You know, you you got to wonder. To me, this would be an opportunity for the quarterback, Tony Romo, and even the coach, Jason Garrett, to kind of step up, impose their will, and make sure that Des Bryant stays there. Impose it. Well, first off, I'll tell you right now, uh, when Jerry Jones talks, uh, whenever he talks, Jason Garrett sits and listens. I mean, and it's no disrespect to Jason Garrett. It's That's the type of head coach that Jerry Jones historically has dealt with. I mean, that's that's the only one he'll work with. Uh, so you can't really defy Jerry Jones. You cannot really disagree with him. You can only hope he, that he contains his comments to a point where they're you know, largely agreeable. <laughs> but let's face it, Montel, you know this as well as I do. If the Cowboys want to make it to the next level, Des Bryant has to be in that uniform. Truth, without a doubt. Absolutely. He must be there. He he must be there. And, and it's yeah. like uh, he's just a key element of that, that team and, and whatever they do moving forward. Part of the running game, part of that success is in part due to his success vertically. And, and let's, do, let's do this one, one more way. Think of the frenzy. Think of the bidding war that would develop if the Dallas Cowboys decided that Des Bryant was not a part of their, their immediate plans or long-term plans. It'd be awful. And if they decide to franchise him, first off, you know, I hate the concept of the franchise tag. We can talk about that for years. But just in general, if they franchise him, if I'm Des, I'm done I'm with the Cowboys. I'm gone. Yeah, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gonna I'm get, gone. Yeah, I'm going to get my huge one-year deal. And I'm walking. And believe me, there will be a team lined up from Dallas to Canada, GMs, executives, coaches, what have you, already to sign Des Bryant to probably one of the largest free agent contracts in, in NFL history. So, um, and, and I'd say any state's healthy, you know, produces. But, yeah, I mean, you can't let this get away. I mean, I, I understand the Cowboys have a bit of an issue because you've got both Des Bryant and DeMarco Murray. So you, you have to make the choice between the two. I don't think they can bring both back. So, okay, no. fine. Mm-mm. Then do it in a professional manner. That's all. Exactly. And I, I, you know, maybe it's just me, you know, and my lack of knowledge, but I thought the Cowboys were above this. I really did. Well, you learned. <laughs> and Montel, Montel, I totally agree with you. Uh, I do not believe that um, you can tag Des Bryant um, basically for what they're trying to do. Uh, really, what off-the-field issues has he had since he's been in the league? He's only had one, and that mm-hmm. was nothing that was that big of a deal. Didn't have any charges, didn't get arrested, wasn't caught with drugs. So where mm-hmm. is this issue of, oh, well, we can't really trust him off the field? 
Well, all they're saying but is yet that you're going to keep a running back like Joseph mm-hmm. Randall, who's been mm-hmm. arrested three times this year alone on the roster. Well, he, he's a and back. He ain't going to catch the money that Des Bryant will. Oh, no. But that's what I'm saying. You know, it's uh, I, I totally agree with you on that one. I, I believe they're lowballing him uh, 100%. Um, if they're doing this to try and get some leverage with DeMarco Murray's camp, uh, good luck because I still think they're going to have a hard time trying to re-sign him, uh, even though Dallas does have the best running game or the best offensive line in, in all of the NFL. Um, yeah, I so think do they ready. franchise tag DeMarco Murray? Is that how this works? I Initially, that's the way I saw it. That's the only way I yeah. saw it happen. Yeah, because uh, – you know he's not going to do short term. Uh, they ran him. They tried to run him in the ground this year. They're going to run him in the ground next year. Uh, this time next year, uh, saying he stays healthy, you still got to say, wow, you know, the mileage. So uh, his asking price will go down. And then maybe they resign him if they do. But uh, maybe he does have his own motives. I mean, if he gets franchised, and I'm referring to Murray here, if he gets franchised, uh, maybe he's gone, you know. But uh, I think it's, it's Dez's first priority. Um, see if you can work it out if it's doable. I I still say this is where the quarterback, Tony Romo, does need to step up and say, you know what, I need this guy in my offense. You need to just work this out with him and and give me the weapons that I need to make this work. And with you saying that, John, what he needs to do then is he needs to call his buddy Jerry Jones and be like, hey, I'm going to restructure my contract. Uh, Because let's be honest, the contract that he has, I believe it was what he signed a fifty some million dollar contract extension. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you well, I mean, look, this is what happened. This is what happened up here in the England a couple of times with with Robert yeah. Kraft, the owner, and with Tom Brady. That that's what's happened. And that contract and has pitching, been restructured a couple of times. And yeah, and they're the pitching to continue being where they are. Yeah, and they're they're pinching pennies here. In in all seriousness, uh, the Patriots are now. Now they, you know, uh, we can get into it, but because Giselle makes what she makes, I think they decided to, you know, squeeze Tom Brady just a little bit, um, and they they kind of were uh, able to do it. But uh, moving back to Cowboys, I don't think Romo restructured. Uh, this will be his last real contract too. You know, how how much longer does he have coming off of the back surgery and all the injuries and stuff like that? So. Uh, you got to think about that too. Is that he's 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 you know got to make his he's got to make his dime too. This might be his last deal. Uh, I just really think it comes down to uh, you know he, Tony's going to talk to these guys. He's going to talk to Jerry Jones. Jerry's going to do what he can do. But I think the key here is I'm going to be petty enough to see if I can get him to come down a little bit before I sign him. As if their money isn't at a surplus, but they, they can afford the little things. Uh, meanwhile, Sean Lee makes. Uh, probably the most out of all these three right now, and he hasn't played a game in like two years. But let's face it, if Romo wants that ring, I, the time has come for him to uh, you know, speak up on the subject. Oh, yeah, yeah. His clock is ticking. Absolutely. Absolutely. What we were talking earlier about windows closing. Cowboys' window might not might might be closing. I mean, they have a solid framework there, but you, you still have to come in and, and groom a new guy, you know, when, when Romo leaves, and that's – a couple years of players that are priming off their careers. You see what I'm saying? So that, that championship window might close soon. Absolutely. And, and with you saying that, Montel and John, both saying uh, the door is closing for Tony Romo. Well, uh, this week the door is officially opening uh, for future stars, with that being uh, the oh, NFL what Scouts Boy, what a segue. In Indianapolis. <laughs> like how he did that? 
I, that was just professionally I, done. I see what you did there, Josh. Hey, hey, thank you very much, boys. You know what? With you guys going back and forth, I had some time to think about that one. So, really, it sounded great, but it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you two. So, thank you. But, anyway, going to the NFL scouting combine, uh, Montel, we talked about this a little bit last night, and we seemingly talk about this every chance we can. Uh, truly, there's going to be some exciting people, uh, you know, and prospects to watch this weekend. Uh, the big one, you know, for, that a lot of people really want to watch is uh, the edge rushers. Um, I was watching, I, I listened to Mel Kuyper uh, talk, I listened to Todd McShay talk, I listened to all the guys at NFL Network, you know, blab, and they're, it seems like they're all sold on this edge rusher class and the fact that uh, even though there's other positions, like an example, the quarterback position, not necessarily who can go one and two because neither of them are going to throw at the combine. But, you know, who's going to be that number three guy or the running back position and how tight that could be heading in uh, to April's draft. And even this receiver class, uh, everybody is sold on these edge rushers trying to create some distance between uh, each other uh, heading into, you know, true mock draft season, which is going to come around March. Uh, first of all, Montel, what position are you going to be, or position group, I should say, or groups, are you going to be most intrigued about to watch? Uh, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm i really, really uh, high on some of these edge rushers, and I want to see how they show up and look, and, you know, I'll also be different. Uh, we know this is one of the, um, you know, I'm a former, former uh, high school tailback, so I'm a huge fan of running back class this year, and I want to see what they can do in the combine. It's going to be uh, – you know, it's going to be a grind to see this is such a deep class uh, in edge rusher uh, as well as tailback. And so you're going to see people stress over the little things. You're going to realize in this class that athleticism, athleticism is going to be there. It's going to be about what kind of football player you are, uh, the people who make a living in NFL, the people who pay attention to detail. Uh, so the tailbacks, the halfbacks that are able to pass lock and catch out of the backfield, uh, not just run the football. Those are the guys who you see stay around longer in the NFL. Uh, the edge rushers that can do more than just pass rush, but they can set a strong edge in a rushing attack and then play the field on uh, zone coverage. Those are the guys that stick around. So uh, who has, uh, you know, lasting talent, lasting ability? That's going to be the determining factor. Of course. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, you know, with this class, uh, particularly the edge guys, with me being a former edge player myself, uh, I'm actually going to have, you know, the opportunity to see these guys live, uh, which is going to be very intriguing for me uh, because I really do love this class. Um, you know more than anybody in terms of edge rushers, uh, I love Vic Beasley. Um, I wish uh, if he was, you know, if he played 15 pounds heavier in college, uh, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion on who would be number one. Um but he didn't, so he's making it that much more intriguing. You talk about a guy like Dante Fowler. You talk about a guy like Shane Ray, uh, Randy Gregory, Beasley, and then Bud Dupree. Uh, that top five, you know, those are going to be guys that I'm going to have my eyes on, and they're going to basically be glued. I want to see what they look like uh, in terms of you know their height and weight. Uh, not only are they going to be a workout, are they going to be a workout warrior, but do they look good in the process? Uh, and what I mean by look good is, you know, you can look at uh, last year's example when you watched uh, Jadavian Clowney uh, at the combine. Granted, he didn't do a whole lot of the drills, but he did some of the, com you know, he did some of the other stuff, uh, like running the 40. 
he looked good in his, you know, workout attire. Uh, not a whole lot of fat on his body, which means he takes care of himself. Uh, that's truly what you want to see from these edge guys, especially because they're going to be tweeners. Uh, you're not going to want a whole lot of fat on them. I don't want to see a soft-looking uh, edge rusher. Uh, I want to see a guy who's chiseled, uh, looks the part of being, uh, you know, a talented and ferocious edge rusher that they were in college. Um, but the biggest thing for me is I want to see how they move uh, in the on-field drills. I'm not going to necessarily be too worried about their 225 bench press because the only thing that really measures is endurance uh, in terms of in muscle stamina. I want to see how they look uh, in the on-field drills. Uh, do their feet look great uh, in terms of doing the bag work? Uh, do they have good hip flexibility? Can they turn and run their hips? Is there any lost or wasted motion there? Uh, so that's what I'm going to be keeping an eye out for the edge rushers. Uh, John, uh, what do you want to see? Runway models, or do you want to see football players? What, what do you yeah, well, you know, Josh likes his edge rushers big, you know, strong and chiseled. So you know, he's, he's, he's got a very keen taste in uh, his, his, the guys he likes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> I think he needs to, to go to New York and, and just go look at some of the runway models as opposed to going to Indianapolis. Here. <laughs> oh man, well you know, it's like a it's like a, it's a beauty pageant for guys. You know what? Wow. What that is, when you look at like a like a guy like a Clay Matthews, and then you look at a guy like a a Marcel Darius. Uh, yeah, he's a, a workout warrior, but he's also a guy who's probably going to spend thirty bucks at a McDonald's down the street. Uh, that's not what I'm going to want to see uh, out of a talented defensive lineman. Uh, I want to see guys who take care of themselves, who look good at the part. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of uh, you know, especially on the edge thing too. That extra weight does play effects in how you run, how you move. Uh, it's going to slow you down in some way, shape, or form, especially if you have a, you know, if you have a, you know, a, a soft belly. Uh, that That's going to move around. Uh, it's it's going to definitely affect the way you, you turn your hips, and it's going to actually restrict uh, some of the movement you have in your hips. So you really want to look for these guys to see whether or not they, they truly have acted the part. Uh, you look at it now. Uh, with it being, you know, this week, Gosh, the second Gosh, week. Are these guys wearing tuxedos or football uniforms? What, what are they wearing Foot, there? It, it, it's football uniforms, but you look at it this way. This is the second. <laughs> this is the second week of February, so they've had an entire month to get into the best shape of their lives. You look at some of the JJ Watt's a prime example. You get a guy who looks like JJ Watt and can play like JJ Watt, you're going to be fine. Why? Because he takes great care of his body. He takes great care of the way he trains. That's what you have to truly look for in these types of prospects that are going to be playing on the edge. You don't want a guy, like I said earlier, like a Marcel Darius, who does and has great workouts, but at the same time isn't truly concerned about his weight or anything like that, which is an issue in the NFL. Okay, so fine. Instead of spending 30 bucks at McDonald's, he spends 30 bucks at Subway. Okay, no, fine. Yeah, I was about hey, to say, but, when you're that size, you eat everything. But, but I understand yeah. Josh's side of it only because he, uh, it's the end of the year. So we were to catch these guys and it's kind of like simple random combine, meaning on any day you have to show up and work out. Yeah. Okay. I can understand it. But if you really do value this process, you do want to get yourself in the best shape possible. Now you can't help your frame. Some people have tall, lanky builds, you know, you can't just throw on 20 pounds at once or anything like that. But especially for your bigger guys, it's important to see some tone. Um, I think, you know, Montel, I think you bring up the very good point. How many of these guys actually care about this particular part of the process? Uh, well, yeah, I think 
it depends on the guy, to be honest. Uh, the less knowledgeable people didn't. I mean, let's remember, you know, I'm sure, you know, John, you might be able to remember yourself. Maybe 20 years ago, no one, I mean, the, the combine was just a formality. You know, go in, exactly. do your thing, and, and nobody right. really paid attention. You read about it in the paper the next day, say, right. oh, cool, look at that. Uh, today, it's gotten more and more um uh, pub because it's been so watchable. It's been so exciting to some of the younger uh, fans and the older fans too. And because television and social media has taken uh, little things like the combine to a whole different level. Uh, from an analysis standpoint, you just needed to back up your film. So don't look at the combine like it's a final exam or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, look at it as a uh, a registration. I mean, you literally come in and you check your boxes, you know, fill in your name and fill in that 40 time too, and, and it better match the, what the, your per, the perception of what your film is and, it, you know, and what people accept for you. And, and that's, that's basically it. So it's, it's not a final okay, exam. Okay, registration. what you're saying is, is that the pro day, the individual pro days is really the final test well for those that have it absolutely so if you're a quarterback and and like i said the quarterbacks need to just start throwing at the combine but you know i could talk about that for years but yes it it is and and it shouldn't be because that usually matters the least in the draft process from us um from an evaluation standpoint but we saw with teddy bridgewater you know didn't have his glove uh went out there and and kind of blew his pro day you know and and people were like up can't take him even though he's got all this film uh said all the right things a high game IQ and a solid build, and people were making Geno Smith comparisons and all these just awful, erroneous things. So uh, these things matter now. You know, the combine, if something's going to matter, I'd prefer that the combine matter before a pro day. Yep. So I just wonder if Josh is going to be concerned about the music that's playing inside the, uh, uh, in Indianapolis while this combine's going on to kind of, uh, uh, you know, make the modeling of, of these guys really complete. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll make sure I call you for that. I'll make sure I call you for that. But, no, the, you know, the argument I make with this, and it's probably not fair, truly, it's probably not fair, but when you look at guys like J.J. Watt, Von Miller, Alden Smith, they have completely changed the way that you look at edge rushers now. You're not looking at them like you were 20 years ago with guys like Reggie White who did have some of that, you know, extra weight on them but could still move around. Uh, these guys have to be in, in, in peak performance in peak shape. Uh, well, look, guys, you, just, that you, know, you brought up Reggie White. You just brought up a Hall of Famer. And I do think that body type from time to time does not necessarily matter. Uh, you know, brains does play a role in this and the ability to understand how to get where you need to get to uh, if you don't necessarily have uh, the speed and quickness. And, and Reggie White was a guy that really did understand the game, learned the game, did his homework, the film work, all of that stuff. And although it could easily be suggested that in Reggie White's case, that his speed and quickness was not the greatest in the world, nevertheless, he knew how to get where he needed to get to as well as anybody who played his position. True. But, and that's what I'm saying is from then to now, that position has drastically changed uh, in terms of the type of athleticism that you see at that position. Uh, you're not finding very many guys anymore. Uh, Leonard Williams is another guy who's prime example. Dude's 6'5", 298 pounds. Uh, he's going to look the part. There's not going to be a whole lot of uh, extra fat or extra skin uh, on, that, on, that, on that frame at all. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he's 6'5", so he'd be stretched out. But that's the way the game is starting to change now. Players are developing younger. 
they're getting bigger, faster, stronger at a younger age. And they're also understanding the fact that, hey, if I truly want to make this what I want it to be and what I vision it to be, I'm going to have to do everything in my power to make sure that is. And the first step in doing that is making sure that, you know, it sounds really weird when you say this, but a lot of players now are starting to get the mentality that your body is your temple. And when you look at NFL players, it's the truth because what's making their money? It's not necessarily the fact that they're in the league itself. It's the fact that their body in the way that they've played and the traits that come with the fact that they have the type of frame that they do brought them to what is allowing them to have the type of contracts that they have. Uh, okay, so it's, so it's two things here. One, the Vince Wolfolk body type need not apply anymore. And two, apparently the footlong subs at Subway are the way to go. <laughs> Hey, I'm not plugging. I'm not plugging Subway. I'm not plugging Subway. But I tell you what, if you do want to get on a diet, Subway's the way to go. Uh, yeah. The Vince Wolfork type body frames only truly exist for teams that want to run three fours. But again, with that being said, you're not going to find a whole lot of those freak type players anymore. Uh, the Lodinatas, the Danny Sheltons, uh, those guys in the college ranks are becoming non-existent. Because yeah, a, it, lot of, a lot more teams yeah. are running 4-3, so you don't need a guy who's 340, 350 pounds. Yeah, well, I think the key here is that essentially the way teams look at it is tape, ideally, at least in their scouting department, tape should trump all, right? So the key here is you can look at a guy and he's 10 pounds heavier than you expected and he looks just god-awful with a shirt off. Got to say, hey, let's go back, let's look at the tape, <laughs> you know, let's see what he did with that body, and, and then you'll reevaluate him, you know, and, and and hopefully he doesn't really move up or down, but you stay where he's at and you put it in perspective. So um, there are going to be knee-jerk reactions due to it. So people, you know, they, they might not like the way a dude looks in his build and they might move him down. Does it make it right? Yeah, probably not if the film is good, but it's just the world we live in where it's like the slightest thing turns you off. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these guys are, you know, this is their job to go in and evaluate. And and it's kind of like from the time a guy uh, is done playing in college uh, through the end of the draft process, uh, it's a GM's uh, pro personnel people scouting. It's their job to evaluate whether they're draftable. And their jobs are on the line. <laughs> so they want to do – they want to make the most unimpeachable selection. And part of that is, might be, you know, great tape, okay, great measurables, okay, let's go to shirt off, okay. And then you can say, I'll draft that dude. And if he's a bust, then you can look back at my notes and say, hey, okay, you draft him too. Now, wouldn't you, you know? So uh, everything's a red flag now, though. That's the yeah, What are we talking about here? Are we talking about football players or the guys who's got the best six-pack abs? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're talking about people who, who have a job and they, they just want to keep it and, and, and everything is a red flag. You know, that's that's really good. And that's just the world we live in. You know, uh, I'd be different than the norm, but, you know, so would Josh. You know, but this is the world we live in. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but but these things, I guess they matter. The last I checked, football players don't play with their shirts off. The last I checked. No, they don't. And they, they shouldn't. And that's what I'm saying is that when you look at the tape, if the tape's good, I take them still. Those types of things don't matter. I mean, people have to put them in perspective. Uh, some people are scared and they say, oh, well, you know, let's back off. And, you know, it's it's just petty things like that, you know. Which I think, which is really the problem I have with the combine. I think it has become rather petty in its process and what they put these guys through uh, during the, the three, four, five days that they have them. I just think that uh, there are better ways to evaluate these players on an individual basis based on, based on their positions 
I'm just not sure that the combine has uh, really um, changed the way that they do things, and I think that that's something that probably does need to be changed. I agree, John, and, and the key here is uh, they do get personal or private workouts with some of these players afterwards, but uh, I think the big thing here is, you know, if you look at some of these private workouts, I mean, it's like a normal practice and the team owns you. I mean, they work you. They yell at you, <laughs> you know, it's it's aggressive. And guys are out there twisting ankles, tearing ACLs, pulling, you know, hamstrings. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, that's more rigorous than the combine itself, really. When they when they work you out privately and you're you're playing for a job, you know, and and how you act and how you react is going to, you know, change their perception of you. It's, it's more rigorous than the combine itself. It's just that, gratefully, you know, there are no cameras there. So I, I think that the, the combine either has to change the way that they go about their business or it just eventually gets phased out by personal workouts and pro days. Yeah, and I think that's the way we're going. I mean, we saw Johnny Manziel's uh, pro day last year, and I think eventually that's what's going to happen because the combine itself, uh, from a media standpoint, is a very long event. And I feel bad for Rich Eisen and those guys because they really – and that's part of the reason why you see a guy is maybe not necessarily talented enough to be there, but have a good story. They're there because, you know, these announcers need something to talk about. It's really hard to say, you know, there goes another 40 and another 40 and another 40, you know, like, so um, it's a tough event to cover. It's a necessary event, unfortunately, but when you look at some of these pro days, they have a lot more shine to it, a lot more luster. And uh, in the future, I think that's the way you'll see it is that the combine will be one of those where you can show up if you want to, We'll show you all the stats live, but we're, we're not going to film tape that. But we'll show you the interviews, though, before and after, because that, that's probably more replay than anything is the interviews. And that's oh, absolutely. Really, and let's face it, there yeah. are going to be some players involved with this draft that the interview process is going to be very important to where they eventually get slotted in the draft. Yes, yes, and, and, and that's going to matter, too. And there's a certain and, guy at Florida State that would, I think, be at the top of that list. Man, you talk about guys who need to win the interview. Uh, he does. Uh, Marcus Absolutely. Peters does. Uh, Doyle Green Beckham does. All these people need to show up and be the brightest man in the room. Uh, you know, whatever happened down there, Florida with Jameis, I guarantee you that there's a team of staff working with him probably right now, um, drilling him on some questions he's going to get, telling him how to, you know, uh, give out polished answers. Uh, the key here is, and, and this will be how you know, uh, which journalists are there and which ones uh, should have been there is what kind of questions is he going to see? And is someone going to ask him that question and get him out of his comfort zone? Because he's going to prepare for just about everything. So who's who's going to crack the code? Yeah, you know, and that's the that's the thing. Going going back to what you had to say, John, about uh, the NFL having to change their ways with the combine. What do you think are some ways that they should change uh, this combine? I think there are probably some drills that take place during the process that are kind of needless and and can be eliminated. I I think that uh, it's a process that probably gets dragged out probably longer than it needs to be. Uh, I think that uh, if you go back to some of the all-star games that take place, the Senior Bowl, the East-West game, uh, you know, they have opportunities during those practice weeks leading into those games to get a good feel on, on some of these players and, and be able to put together a pretty good file on some of these players. Uh, I think that uh, I just think the combine is something that probably isn't a 
a necessity anymore. I mean, certainly for the city of Indianapolis it is because it, it brings in revenue for the city from the restaurants, from the hotels, and so forth. But I think in terms of being able to evaluate uh, football players and to evaluate what you may or may not do in, in any particular draft, I think they're just becoming better ways to do it, and the combine just isn't one of them. Well, and, you know, the big thing about the combine is that it's truly the first time we get a glimpse of these players out of the shoulder pads, like you talked about. They play this game in shoulder pads, uh, but this is the first time we get a chance to get a glimpse of them out of their shoulder pads. And, again, like Montel said, it's not the final exam, but it's one of them. Uh, this is one of the places where you are truly going to meet with all 32 teams. Uh, or have the opportunity to at least meet with all 32 teams, you're going to be able to wow them or displease them. So this is truly the first step in allowing these prospects to either jump up draft boards or drop down on draft boards. Okay, so uh, how many of the projected first-round pick players do you think will show up in Indianapolis come Sunday? What's that again? Three quarters. How many of the projected, what you think are the projected first-round players that will get picked in the draft, how many of those players do you think will actually show up on Sunday? Half? Three quarters? A quarter of them? Well, I think uh, think out of the ones that are projected to be in the first round, uh, that's the thing about the NFL. You never truly know who's going to show up on Sundays. Uh, I can tell you one thing. uh, Some of these edge rushers will – these receivers will, because uh, in terms of transition, those are some of the easiest positions to transvis- uh, transition from. Quarterbacks, on the but other I mean, hand. If you're uh, a guy like a Marcus Mariota, if you're a guy like mm-hmm. uh, an Cooper, are you going to show up in Indianapolis, or are you going to just wait? Oh, you're going to show mean, up in Indianapolis. And there was or, just a report out that Mariota will throw at the combine. So that's, okay. that's again, that's another thing, because he comes from a system that, is not necessarily an NFL system unless yeah. you want to throw Chip Kelly's offense as an NFL system, but it's not. It's considered an NFL system because it's in the NFL, but it's it's not the traditional offense that you see the majority of these teams run. Didn't have to r- worry about going any through any progressions. Uh, in terms of being a pocket passer, he didn't really have to worry about that because they put him on boots and rollouts to get him out of the pocket to make quick throws because that's how the Oregon offense was set up. So this is truly by the way, the first... by, by the way, Josh, you, you brought up Chip Kelly. How bad do you think Chip Kelly wants Mariota? Uh, I, well, personally, it's kind I of think a Captain a Ahab, Moby Dick type thing. That, that's how bad he wants him. I mean, that's it's, yeah. it's just for real. Like it's, I mean, and I'm sorry, Josh, but it's uh, the truth is if if he gets past six, it's going to. I'm not going to say it's going to happen but it's going to become a possibility. And if you can get – if they can get him around 10, he'll make a move. Um, well, and, and the Eagles is, do you think that the Philadelphia Eagles, in, their, in their, their want and their desire to have Mariota in that offense because of his familiarity with it, are the Eagles willing to trade up to make sure that they get him? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying is that they're going to – if he's close enough, if he doesn't go one overall, everything's in play. And then once he gets past six uh, and the Jets pass on him, which I really can't fathom. But if he does it, yeah, it's going to fall just like that. They're going to get him. They're going to – I mean, I heard as many as two or three first-round picks could go for him. Uh, it could be bigger than the RG3 trade. Um, the sad part here is 
Here's Chip Kelly. I'm telling you, I'm calling him now on this show. He will draft Marcus Mariota. He will he will bring him in if it you know obviously if if everyone's amiable to it, and he'll see that all these picks that he traded to get him could have filled other more glaring holes in that team. He will struggle because Dallas is good. The Giants might be good again. Who knows what the Redskins are up to? He will not win the division for a couple of years, and he will go back to college and leave Philly left for dead. I'll call him right now. If he trades for Mariota, that's the way it's going to go. So is and, this and a I, draft and where – same way with you on that one, Montel. Uh, okay. you, you look at the Philadelphia Eagles, they actually do have a lot of firepower to get rid of. Uh, they're obviously going to franchise uh, Jeremy Macklin. They're going to have to make a decision on LaShawn McCoy as he's going to be worth about $14 million this year. Uh, are you sure that's money that you want to keep him? That's a player that they could potentially offload. Nick Foles is another guy. If they're truly invested in trying to trade up to get Marcus Mariota, you can package those players with some picks, and a team is going to bite. Uh, Buffalo Bills were the prime example. Uh, they bid on the trade that the Browns gave them to trade up and get Sammy Watkins. Um, you know, so that's one of the in the you know the biggest thing is is the fact that he's the VP of player personnel now. Uh, so in terms of the NFL draft, you know, and, and the war room aspect of that in Philadelphia, next to the general manager, he's the second biggest mind in that room. Uh, which means he can call the shots necessarily if he wants to. Um, so that, that's another thing that you have to kind of take you know, into consideration with that is that now that he can potentially call the shots in the front office and in the draft room, uh, he can virtually build his team any way he wants. And in terms of quarterback, I've said it before, I don't think Nick Foles is a quarterback that's in his system. Is he a good quarterback? Yes, he's proven it. But he's not, a, he's not a quarterback that's built for that type of system. That type of system is built for a Michael Vick, who I don't still understand why they let him walk. Uh, he would have been a good backup for them. And a guy that we're speaking about right now, Marcus Mariota. Uh, that would be the consistent pick uh, if you had, to, put a, if you had to, to play matchmaker on anybody in this draft. You can basically peg that the Philadelphia Eagles are going to do anything in their power, and Chip Kelly – is going to do anything in his power in terms of throwing a fit, throwing a tantrum, whatever you want to call it, to try and get into a position to get Marcus Mariota. And the easiest thing to do is to try and get in front of the Jets. Uh, There's a report out there that the Titans aren't necessarily looking at a quarterback. Uh, Is that a smokescreen? It could potentially could. But Zach Mettenberger played good enough last year to, to basically deserve one last opportunity, one last shot uh, as a make-or-break type of deal. Um, You look at the Jets, they're a team, again, that they could potentially go quarterback if they want to. And then, of course, Tampa Bay, as much as I put Mariota at number one in my mock draft, I do think that they're going to go Jameis Winston just because the fact that so many ties to the area and the fact that he's a Florida kid, played at Florida State, uh, that's going to be too enticing for them to pass up. And he's a pro-style type of quarterback and a, the more pro-ready quarterback out of the two. It's going to make it too enticing for Lovey Smith to give up. That's why if they can get in front of the Jets or even find a way to get in front of Washington at five or at, at five for no reason, maybe say uh, the Raiders want to pull something, which I doubt, 
Uh, that's why I truly think you're going to see them uh, try and get up to get Marcus Mariota. Well, it just bothers me because Brett Hundley will be right there at 20. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really it. I mean, matter of fact, in theory, even though quarterbacks go way higher than they should, in theory, Brett Hundley should be there in the second round at wherever they draft. But at the very least, well, he'll be there in the first at 20. Well, let's face it. If, if we if we are to believe what Mel Kuyper is, is already starting to, to throw out there, he is suggesting that only two quarterbacks will get taken in the first round, and that would be Mariota and Winston and that the rest of them take play, take drafted or get drafted later on in the process. So if he's right and it's only two quarterbacks in the first round, then guys like Hunley and, and Trevor Knight and, and whoever else could be available, uh, you're talking second, third, fourth, hell, maybe even fifth round, the way it, it could potentially shake out. Yeah, and that's it, is that sometimes more quarterbacks go than they should in past draft, but this is like the worst quarterback draft anyone's seen in a while. So you're really – really reaching if you take a guy here i take and i i'm one i'm on the record you know i've been saying it for like the last few years uh i'm not even um the type of guy who takes a a a running back in the first round i don't believe you have to do that anymore but in this draft i would take a running back in the first round before i take the number three quarterback in in the first i would in a heartbeat Gurley, uh, gordon far better players than hunley petty whoever he's got at three all right, I think we exhausted this subject. Well, and, and to make one last point on that with with Montel, uh, I think Hunley, you know, like you said, Hunley is a guy that you can place there, um, you know, at 20. Comes from a similar type of system. Uh, they allow him to be a little bit more of a, a pocket passer. But in terms of, you know, how he could fit into Philly, he does have that dual threat capability, which is really what, that Eagles offense is built for, which is why Nick Foles isn't the greatest fit there. Uh, so I totally agree with you that, you know, they don't necessarily have to uh, exercise that option to try and basically, you know, pull one of the worst trades in history off to try and get a quarterback who might not even be ready till halfway through the season. Well, let's uh, face it. There's a comfort level between the coach and that quarterback that can't be denied here. Well, no, in, in that comfort level being the fact that uh, Chip Kelly was the one that recruited him. Chip Kelly was the one that exactly. gave him his shot. Exactly. Chip Kelly was the one that also helped him be a star. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can, you know, that you have to try and exacerbate and, and try and get him. Uh, Tell him that. You know, that's, that court, you know, that system – we could throw anybody in that system and they're going to be okay because it's no huddle. It's up tempo. You're not really truly having to read any defenses and it's basically off misdirection and misconception in terms of the running game. So you can throw any type of quarterback in that offense and they're going to be fine. Prime example. Why did Nick Foles play so well when he was a rookie? It's because nobody expected him to do that. It's because the offense wasn't designed for him to do that. You know, the offense wasn't, was designed for him to look that good. Uh, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why he might have struggled this year is because teams kind of caught on to that. So you don't necessarily have to to, to do that. Uh, like Montel said and like you even said, uh, this is a draft where you can get a guy in the third or fourth round and you're going to be fine. A Bryce Petty, granted, there are some tools to his game that need to be refined, and, and again, one of them coming out of a pass-happy offense, 
but he's another guy that you can get in the third or fourth round and you could be okay with later down the road. Uh, we, you know, we've seen it time and time again with quarterbacks. Uh, in, in terms of positions, you know, the first round in, in the draft in general has truly doesn't really mean anything anymore. The only thing it means is that you're going to be guaranteed a good amount of money. Necessarily going to mean that you're guaranteed stardom or anything like that, and you guys both know that. Uh, so, and a quarterback is the is the best example. Uh, you know, Russell Wilson was a guy taken in the third round. I mean, Tom Brady, a guy taken in the sixth round. Uh, not a whole lot of first round quarterbacks are truly big stars in this league. Colin Kaepernick, second round quarterback. Well, let's face you know, it, Josh. Part of that is that the the draft has changed based on the collective bargaining agreement. In terms of the money, yes. Yeah. In, in terms of the money, yes, it, it has changed. But in yeah. terms of the fact that uh, the position... Teams can now slot players into certain spots now that they couldn't do back when, say, Brady was drafted or uh, some of the others that were drafted, uh, Peyton Manning when he was drafted. Uh, you didn't do that back then because you didn't have to. But now, in some ways, you do because there's a salary cap that you have to consider. There's a rookie cap that you now have as, at your disposal, which makes it rather easier to go ahead and slot players in certain spots, uh, regardless of, uh, in some cases, talent level. You can just do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, but, again, that's, that's just one of the ways that, the, you know, this game is changing and it's going to continue to change. Uh, but getting back, you know, getting off the tangent and, and back to the combine, uh, Montel, who are some sleepers that you're looking at uh, heading into the combine and even throughout the rest of the draft prospect uh, process uh, for guys who have been invited to Indianapolis? Well, I really like Danielle Hunter. Like I said before, he's uh, he's a Barkevious Mingo clone. Uh, I got a place on the Browns. He, he's got the same body type, same length. He'll be able to do a lot of the same things at the next level. And another thing about this guy is that he's got, you know, the, the same uh, type of body as Randy Gregory. He just comes at discount price. You know, he'll, he'll be a guy that's probably there on uh, day two in the second round, maybe later second. You can get this guy. He's going to test phenomenal. He's going to test a lot like Randy Gregory is expected to test. So uh, for his sake, he better he better show up on uh, combine day. But, uh, truth be told, uh, I like him a lot, mostly because uh, of his length and his athleticism. And then uh, this, the draft is you – know, not the draft. The combine is kind of made for guys like Hunter who weren't very productive during the year and uh, just show up and, and just show out, you know, athletically. So it, it's made for guys like that. I think Mario Edwards Jr. will be another guy. Uh, took several plays off during the season. Played when he wanted to play, you know, did this, did that, you know, didn't really hustle as much as he wanted him to. But when he turned it on for a little bit, uh, and that tape went on, and you could see him actually trying. He was he was a great player. He was one of the best defensive linemen in all of college football when he's motivated. Uh, and so people are, you know, not even thinking about him right now. That, that's the type of year he put out there for Florida State. But he, a guy like him will go in, show you how powerful he is, succeed in drills, and boost his draft stock. So, uh, you know, just keep a lookout for Mario Elvis Jr. I really think he's going to be fine. Yeah, and those are, uh, you know, I like those guys. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of Daniel Hunter. Uh, we talked about him again uh, a little bit on our podcast. Uh, he's a guy that I, I really think is going to jump back, you know, in into first-round consideration with uh, Uwambi Odigizua from UCLA, you know, the defensive end from UCLA. 
talking about the wide receiver class, because this wide receiver class, in terms of the top five, is very tight. Uh, who do you think is going to be the top dog uh, leading out of the combine uh, on Monday? I think I think people are going to be talking about Philip Dorsett potentially going in the first round. I, I think that'll be the talk. He's gonna he's gonna be he's a great leaper. Uh, I've seen some of his tape. Uh, he can jump. I mean, for a shorter guy, you know, he can jump pretty high. Uh, he's a very sharp route runner, precise. Uh, people will kick the tires on taking him in the first. Um, you know, if people took Brandon Cooks last year in the first with his, uh, I believe he struggled with route running, but he still, you know, was a very good college player. Um, you've got uh, Philip Dorsett, who's even faster than Cooks, runs better routes. Uh, why not take him in the first round of this draft? So I'm not saying do it. I'm saying people will talk about doing it uh, because he will – probably have the fastest 40. He will uh, leap, you, you know, his vertical jump will be a lot better than people think. Maybe on power some of these bigger guys, and that's going to be scary. Uh, so people will be talking about him. I'm definitely going to look and, and see where that goes. And also uh, be on the lookout for Jameson Crowder, John's guy. Yeah. You know, this yeah. dude will that's, show up. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that that's a kid that I think the, uh, does have the – I think this would be an event for him – uh, based on the offense that he came from and the school that he came from, uh, being Duke, that um, I think the combine could be a very important tool for him to uh, to elevate his stock in a in a frankly a, a crowded position. I think the wide receiver position is going to be the deepest one in the draft, especially on the offensive yep. side, but yep. maybe the the deepest in the draft period on either side of the ball. And I think for a guy like Jamison Crowder, if he wants to uh, stick his nose in the rarefied air, if you will then this performance uh, in the combine is going to be a key element in allowing him to process uh, at least the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and, and everything sliding up, John. You know, I was talking about Phil Dorsett as a third-round guy. Now it's almost confirmed second. I really like Jameson Crowder, but I thought, hey, you know, round four-ish, somewhere in that area, maybe round five. He could be round two or three after everything's said. He might be round two. You know, I – I don't want to tell, I'll even say this, I think for Duke Johnson, I would say the same thing about him. I think this is an opportunity for him to be able to elevate himself in a position that maybe is not as crowded as the wide receiver position. But let's face it, um, you know, Miami wasn't on television as often this past year as you uh, are sort of used to, accustomed to. Oh, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if Duke Johnson wants to uh, sort of reintroduce himself uh, to uh, the football world, this would be the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and he, he'll be another guy that tests extremely well. I think people are going to be surprised where he benches and, and how he gets the bar up. And he's going to run very well too. I think the ten yard split is going to be phenomenal, and he's going to be he's going to have probably the best hands and drills. That's uh, a very good all around tailback. Uh, don't really know a good comparison for him. I think Darren Sproles, but I think maybe an older school guy probably fits the bill better. But uh, I'm going to be curious to see how he measures up height wise. Uh, people are saying he's going to be maybe in the five eight range. Five eight and a half, uh, that might hurt him stock. But personally, it doesn't hurt him stock, in my opinion. I'm probably not going to move him down in terms of positional rankings or where he's at on my board based on his height. It'll be solely based on performance. One guy that I want to bring up is Jalen Strong. Um, it's a guy that's that male body. You got that male model body type. Hey, hey, easy Actually, now there, he brother. Does. Actually, he does. <laughs> ah, see, there you go. See, see. But he's a 
he's a guy that, you know, we, we look for, uh, you know, people compare him to Calvin Johnson. Uh, people compare him to, uh, uh, people compare him to Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, what are some of the things, uh, that you look for in him, Montel? I recently, you know, because I've I've done, you know, some scouting on some of these guys, some watching tape, and I think, you know, considering how this is the combine and it's a great time for people who write about the draft to sit and listen, I'm going to be rewatching some tape this week. And, and last week, you know, two weeks ago, I rewatched some of Jalen Strong's tape. And at first I saw him, I was like, yeah, this guy's great, you know. And then I was like, something's missing from his game. But, yeah, you know, take him, you know. And the second time I watched him, I was like, first off, you know, he's got all the physical tools you can ask for as a wide receiver. He's going to run fast enough at his length. Uh, he's a leaper, a great hands catcher. He's a vertical threat. Um, but issue here is it's going to be route running and it's going to be, uh, the feasibility of him becoming a route runner uh, because of his build. You know, he's a little bit on the stiff hip side. Uh, he's got to do a better job when he's running that route to sink his hips into his brakes and turn. And, and you know, don't make it so easy for the corners to follow you. Uh, I know it's harder when you've got the bigger body that you you can't help but kind of tip guys off because, you know, your turns are going to be slower. But uh, he, he's got to run like he's half of his weight, you know. So he's he's got to be floating out there, and I want to see what people do. But I think the fun part here is uh, no matter how he runs, no matter how anyone runs a, a route here, everyone needs to become a better route runner. And I think that's over. And that's the misconception here is, oh, this guy's routes need work. Everyone's routes needs work. And the NFL getting open is a whole new, you know, whole new juncture. So uh, is he maybe not as far down the road as other guys? Sure, but I wouldn't let it discourage me too much. Uh, I really wish you go to a team like a Kansas City uh, team. Maybe it won't happen, but like a you know like a Cincinnati, uh, because then uh, they can use him more vertically, and that's where he's good until they can get his uh, you know his his hips a little bit more fluid and, and work on his route running. But get him where you can tag vertically, send him on the deep routes, the, the, you know, the 10 yard outs, the curls, you know, even the quick slants, you know, do things like that. It's a mass, some of his deficiencies in route running. And then, you know, take the time to teach him to get better. And, and I, and I totally agree with you on that one, man. He's a guy that I, I really like. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on out for him when I'm, I'm down there for sure. Um, with that being said, you know, we're running out of time. I want to thank you and John uh, for coming on again this evening and giving us uh, all your guys' knowledge and your time on anything and everything sports. Um, with that being said, uh, on the next show, we will definitely recap uh, what I see at the Combine, and that will definitely be some talk that we'll have, uh, and we'll go from there. But, again, uh, Montel, thank you very much, and uh, hope everybody else has a good rest of your week. And with that being said, we are done.